The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Now, it's my task to go through all of chapter 1 of Revelation. I'm going to really camp out, or highlight verses 12 through 20. 1 through 11 is introductory to the book, where John the Apostle introduces himself as the author of this 22-chapter prophecy. The last book in the Bible that was written, written in the mid-90s A.D., John was an old man, he's a prisoner. He'd been a pastor in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. I know some of you have actually been to modern-day Turkey. Some of you have been to the cities that are mentioned in chapter 1 of Revelation, Ephesus and other places. And uh, John was a pastor in Jerusalem originally, one of the apostles, and then for about 30 or so years, and then pretty reliable history tells us that he went to Asia Minor, the area of Turkey, and pastored in the church at Ephesus, Ephesus and probably some of these other churches in this area. So John is very familiar with these churches that are mentioned, seven churches that are identified here in this book. He's their pastor. He loves them. They love him. They've learned a lot from him. He served faithfully, sacrificially. And now he's a prisoner. He'd been arrested. And then he'd been shipped to the coast going west where the Aegean Sea meets the Mediterranean Sea on a little island called Patmos. It still exists today, the island of Patmos. 2,000 years ago, it was a penal colony from the Roman Empire. Asia Minor was under the umbrella of the Roman Empire. Domitian was the emperor at the time. He was a brutal, self-centered, Christ-hating thug. And John was persecuted by the Roman Empire and Domitian and wouldn't shut his mouth about Jesus and the Word of God, calling people to repentance, repent of their sin. He would bow the knee only to Jesus, who was the only Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Domitian and the Roman emperors couldn't handle that. They were jealous. They wanted to be recognized as God or Lord of Lords, probably one of the reasons that Domitian had John arrested and tried to shut him down, shipped him off to this penal colony in uh, this island, among 50 islands, by the way. Patmos is still there today. You can go visit it. Probably about 10 miles by 5 miles. In this area, we're familiar with islands that are used as penal colonies or prisons, right? Right up here, just drive away. We've got the Alcatraz Island. Many of you have probably been there to visit it. That was a hardcore prison. So this is somewhat similar, 2,000 years ago. But it was hard labor, working in the mines. These people were treated terribly, John included. Patmos is probably 10 times bigger than Alcatraz, just by way of comparison if you've been to Alcatraz. There was no escaping that island. So this is where John is when he's, when he actually is getting this revelation from Jesus Christ. This is amazing. He is away from civilization. He's isolated where he can't reach anybody or communicate with anybody, and yet the God of the universe comes immediately to communicate personally with John. Isn't that awesome? The Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, makes a special appearance personally to John the prisoner on a remote island to give him amazing truth that will bless the souls of churches from the ages. So that's the background and context so let's run through the introduction, 1 through 11, and then we'll look at the meat of what I wanted to highlight today. As we think about God has brought us to a point providentially of merging as a church. We're now in week three of Creekside Bible Church. Two bodies, two Christian local bodies coming together as one. That's not easy. It's actually humanly impossible. And the longer you're in ministry, the longer you're in church, the longer you're a pastor such as myself, and the more churches you've worked at, the more I appreciate and realize how humanly impossible it is to bring two churches together as Christian churches and to live harmoniously and like-mindedly as a corporate entity because just the opposite usually happens. You're not coming together and getting along. You're splitting and splitting and dividing. That's pretty typical of human nature and churches, unfortunately. So we think God has done a beautiful thing. We trust that he will continue to sustain us in that regard. And so as I was thinking, well, how do we spend the next immediate few months of our new church merge where people are learning things and learning one another, most importantly, 
two new bodies learning one another and trying to become like a mixed or merged family. We need to think the same way. We need to think on the same page. We need God's thoughts. We need God's thoughts in particular about what a church is to be. And no better place than to go to the Bible, no better place to go than the book of Revelation, no better place to go than Revelation chapter 1 through 3 where the Lord Jesus Christ himself, more comprehensively and more specifically than any else other place in the Bible, Jesus literally explains what a church of Christ is to be in a way that pleases God. In specific detail. So I just thought, oh, that's, this is beautiful. What a beautiful blueprint that God has already laid out for his people, for the saints. We can do a study of Revelation 1 through 3 over the next several months and look at Jesus, particularly in chapter 2 and 3, as he addresses each individual church. There are seven churches that he addresses. They're all in Asia Minor. They are real churches, historical churches. They are churches that John the Apostle was familiar with, some in which he pastored at. And Jesus addresses every one of those churches, and he addresses their strengths and their weaknesses. He gives blessings. He gives warnings. And as a result of the words of Christ, we learn very clearly, comprehensively, what a a local church is to be to the glory of God. So we're going to benefit immensely from this. And so we're doing this over nine weeks. And then starting next week, we're going to look at each of the seven churches one week at a time. Next week will be the first church, chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll begin there. And the emphasis is going to be, what does Jesus have to say to this local church? And then also to ask the Holy Spirit, okay, now to apply that to our church. How are we like this church in a way that's good? How are we like this church in a way that is bad? How should, what are the things we should avoid? And how should we depend upon Christ, most importantly, through it all? So before I get to the introduction and breeze through that, verses 1 through 11, let me ask you a couple of questions just to get us thinking today about your ecclesiology. Don't worry about spelling it. Your ecclesiology, what's that? Iglesia in Spanish, ecclesia in Greek church in English. It's theology about the church, the local church. What is your belief about the church? What do you believe about the local church or just the church in general, your theology of it? What does the Bible say about it? These questions will prompt our thinking. Don't answer out loud. Answer in your own heart. Question number one, who builds the church? Question number two, how do you grow a church? I've been asked that many times over decades of serving in different churches. How do pastors grow the church? How do pastors grow the church? How do we grow the church? Here's one of my favorites. Who's the senior pastor of your church? Who's the senior pastor of your church? That was the first conversation that actually Pastor Justin and I had. Okay, we're going to merge. There's going to be a new church. Still don't know what we're going to call it. Who's the senior pastor? We'll talk about that. Another question, who runs the church? Who's in control of the church? Who's the boss of the church? Question number five, how much authority do pastors have over the church members in their church? How much authority do uh, pastors have over the lives of the members in their church? I'll say that one more time because it's so important. How much authority do pastors or elders have over the lives of the church members in their church? How much authority do they have? Here's the answer. See how you did. How do you build a church? How do pastors build a church? Answer, we don't. Jesus promised in Matthew 16, 18, before he even started the church, he told his apostles, I will build my church church. That's what Jesus said. I will build my church. That is so relieving for me. I'm not, I'm not thinking about, I'm not trying to muster up creativity and anything else that I could possibly do to try to build the church. How can I build the church? How can I make it bigger? How can I make it grow? What are the numbers? What's the head count? I'm not driven by that. We shouldn't be. No pastor should be driven by that. We don't build the church. We can't build the church. People sometimes think that if there's big numbers, that's the blessing of God. That's not true. The largest false religion in the world has got blessings of numbers. Who runs the church? Who has the authority of the church? Well, it's not the pastors. Jesus does. Because that leads to my next question, and that was, who's the senior pastor at the church? Well, I'm not. 
I'm one of eight elders. I'm a member. I'm a sinner. It's not my church. Who's the senior pastor? Hopefully it's not on the bulletin that says senior pastor Cliff. Yikes. Oh, good. It doesn't say that. Jesus is the senior pastor. If you want a verse, it's 1 Peter chapter 5. Read that passage 1 through 4. Great and severe warning to elders, shepherds, pastors, what they should be doing, even their title. Jesus is the senior pastor. He's the only senior pastor. He is the good shepherd, the good pastor, the senior pastor, the great shepherd, the only senior pastor. There are no vacancies. It's his church. He died for it. He purchases it with his own blood. He laid the foundation of it. He built it. He sustains it. He provides for it. He's the judge of it. We're going to see that in Revelation 1 through 3. That's why I chose Revelation 1 through 3. We need to hear from an authoritative source regarding the church that is Jesus and Jesus alone. Last question. It's real personal. How much authority do pastors or elders have over the people in their church? How much authority do pastors and elders have over the lives of the people in the church, over the church members? Here's the answer. Zero. None. I don't know if that surprises you at all. And I'm talking about innate authority, inherent authority. It's not my church. I don't own the church. I'm not in charge of the church. I didn't die for the church. I'm not judging the church. I'm not marrying the church as Jesus is. I have absolutely zero authority as a pastor and elder over the personal lives of the people in my church. That's clear from Scripture. I'm talking about innate, inherent authority. I don't, shouldn't be waltzing around on the campus thinking, oh, I'm, I'm the pastor. I got more authority than everybody else. No, I don't. Pastors and elders do have authority. It's called delegated authority. It's authority given as a gift from God. It's authority given as a stewardship. It's a trust, which means I'm responsible for guarding it, for being faithful with it. It is not my own. I must give it back. I will be held accountable for it. I will be judged for how I used it or abused it. It's called delegated authority. That is the only kind of authority that any pastor or church leader has. Other than that, I have zero authority in the church. And we're going to see from Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is the only one with all authority over the church. It is his church. I do have authority, limited authority, delegated authority, temporary authority in the church, mainly to be a servant of the church. So what kind of authority do I have as a pastor in the church? Well, I have the authority from God himself to be a servant of the church. And hopefully your pastors and elders are some of the greatest, biggest, most self-serving, sacrificial servants in the church because that's what they're called to be. That's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus modeled, particularly in Matthew, uh, John 13. So in light of that, let's look at Jesus, the Lord of the church, the judge of the church. Speaking as judge of the church, we're going to see Jesus judge. He's got some harsh words to say. They're going to shock you if you've never read Revelation or haven't heard him for a while. It's legit for Jesus to judge the church. He can say whatever he wants. He's perfect. He's God. It's his church. He knows everything. He knows what's best. I cringe when I hear other people, when I hear Christians criticize the church, knock the church, take cheap shots at the church. Christians, professing Christians, criticize the church, bash the church. Oh, the church body isn't doing this. Oh, the church in America isn't doing this. I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, aren't you one of those? Aren't you a part of it? We have no right to bash the church. That's Jesus' bride, his precious bride that he's building, he's growing, he's purifying. He's going to marry eternally. You don't mess with Jesus' bride. You want to criticize the church, let Jesus do it and let him do it from his word. He's already done it. We don't need to go beyond Scripture. Let's just listen to what he's already said and take heed and accept the fact that he's gracious and merciful and has allowed us fallen sinners to be a part of his blessed church, the glorious church of Christ, the precious bride of Christ. That's what the church is. So let's look at it. Starting at verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. John testified to the word of God and to the testimony or witness of Jesus Christ, even to everything that John saw on this island during this revelation. 
So the title of the book is The Revelation, The Apocalypsis. All that means is the unveiling, the revealing. Information has been hidden in the infinite mind of God for all eternity, and now for the first time in history, it is unveiled and displayed and given by John the Apostle 22 chapters worth. Basically, it says how everything ends. The end of the story. How the Daniel of the Old Testament so much looked forward to how the story ended because he was given so much information about it but never heard the conclusion. And John gives us the conclusion. We know how it ends. We know how world history ends and then uh, ushers into eternity. That's what we're going to get here, the unveiling, the revelation. And who is unveiling or revealing this information? It's Jesus Christ. It says right there, it's the unveiling, the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. This information comes from Jesus himself, Jesus, the glorified Christ. He's the one revealing all 22 chapters of this information, and he's re revealing it to his selected servant or slave, John the Apostle. John identifies himself. John wrote this book. John was an apostle, but he was also a prophet, which was a rare occasion throughout world history where God would use a man or a woman as a prophet and display and give direct revelation to them to be unveiled and sometimes to be written down, and that's what John did here. He wrote it all down. And Jesus is unveiling this new information to John. John was incredibly privileged. By this time in mid-90s A.D., all of his friends, the 11 apostles, they're dead. They've been murdered for Christ. John is the only one alive, and now he's in prison. Maybe he's got a couple of gospels that he got his hands on. Some of those difficult epistles from Paul. Maybe some uh, of the epistles from his good friend Peter 30 years previous in the 60s, who is now beheaded and dead in heaven with the Lord. The last scripture written was probably 20, 30 years ago. So there's this 20 to 30 year of silence from John's point of view, from Christian's point of view. And then all of a sudden, God just pours out an amazing amount of revelation to John in his old age, when he's in his 80s, maybe even his 90s, in AD 80s and 90s. Think of all that John got. He got three epistles that God gave him to write down. Then he got the whole gospel of John. Then he got 22 chapters of revelation. And he's just, he's just pouring it out, all this fulfillment of God's revelation of how it all ends. How glorious. So Jesus gives this to John. John is a slave of Christ. Verse 2, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Christ Jesus, even to all that he saw. And that's the contents of the whole book. So John not just heard the information, he saw it. God communicated this whole book in pictures, signs, symbols through prophetic trances that he was in. Not in dreams. He was awake, totally conscious, and then catapult or take into the spiritual world, which is a real domain and real world, and was given this high privilege of these revelations from God with the clearest thinking possible and the clearest vision possible as God reveals all of this. Jesus reveals all this to John, and then, he, and then Jesus gives him the capability through the Holy Spirit to remember it all and to write it down perfectly, and by the grace of God and the Spirit of God, it has been preserved perfectly for 2,000 years, and we can trust in it. That's why verse 3, there's a blessing. Blessed is the one. Blessed is, Today, this is true in 2019, blessed is the Christian or anyone who reads this prophecy, the book of Revelation, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, for those who didn't have a book, they had to listen. That was typical in churches 2,000 years ago, also in the synagogue, that a leader would get up and read the Scripture. Nobody else, you didn't, they didn't come to church with their Bible. They didn't have a Bible. They had one scroll in the building, unless you were really, really, really rich. And even then it was rare. So you had to listen attentively as the Scripture was read. And that was the case here. Blessed is the one who hears the words of this prophecy and then does the things that are written in it. For the time is near. The time is near. The time is soon, literally in the Greek text. The time is soon. What time? Uh, the time is referring to epics of world history. In Daniel's day, 500 B.C., the time wasn't near, and God told him that through an angel. Daniel, this is how the world's going to end, but it ain't near. Something's still a-coming. Fast forward to the days of John, and, and basically Jesus is saying, here's the end of the story, the time is near. This epic of history is now happening. We're not during, it's not creation time anymore, it's not flood time, it's not the epic of Israel and the Mosaic Covenant. It's not the epic of the Messiah coming and dying. That's all done. It's all complete. There's nothing else on God's calendar save this and this alone. The time 
is now. And it actually began 2,000 years ago. We are in the last days. Verse 4, John to the seven churches. So John is writing, he wrote this information down and he sent it to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And they're kind of in a circle, starting with Ephesus and you go around on a circuit to Laodicea. They're all about 30 to 40 miles apart. And they're actually kind of on a, a postal route circuit that where a horse or camel or whatever would go around and take mail and carry packages. We know that from history. These were strategic cities and there were churches in all of them. And so John is going to be strategic, very practical, and so he's going to send messengers to all seven churches with the book of Revelation so they can hear the words of Jesus and what he thinks about a local church. So John to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor, we know it today as modern-day Turkey, grace to you and peace. So he extends grace and peace. Not just grace and peace from John, but grace and peace ultimately from the triune God of the universe. Grace to you if you've been saved. If you're a Christian, you've been given grace by God. That's what that means. This is the Old Testament Hebrew shalom or grace and peace. Grace to you. If you're a benefit of Christ's death on your behalf, your sins have been forgiven, you've repented, you know Christ is Lord, you're adopted into the family, you don't deserve it, we don't earn it. And yet he sovereignly chose us to be in his family. That is grace. Grace to you. So if you're a Christian, that's an appropriate greeting, grace to you. If you're not a Christian, there is no grace to you. Grace has maybe been extended and you've thwarted it. You've put the fist in the face of God. I don't want your grace. I don't want your mercy. We can't say grace to you. You're in need of grace. The wrath of God abides on you, just the opposite. But grace to you. So these are believers that he's writing to. These are believers in real churches. Believers. Real churches. Started as real churches. Some have probably started by apostles. Perfect churches? No. There's no such thing. Real churches? Yes. With Christians in every church? Yes. Unbelievers in some of these churches? Yes. Self-deceived people in these churches? Yes. Compromisers? Immoral people? Yes. Rebels in some of these churches? Yes. Real churches? Yes. Therefore, it's legitimate. John could say grace to you. Grace and peace to you. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you. Man, even Laodicea, which had very little good to say about it. I just think it's merciful and gracious that John starts out saying, even to these disobedient churches, grace grace and peace to you. Oh, the church at Laodicea, I've preached there many times on Sunday evening services for 30 years. Oh, still some of the faces that I see. Grace to you, grace and peace to you. And then Jesus is going to lay into that church and he doesn't say one good thing about that church. It's kind of like Paul talking to the Corinthians who used and abused Paul. They had very little to commend them. And yet Paul starts out by saying grace and peace to you. I know you received the gospel when I came to town. I know that you got saved. Then he rails on him for 15 chapters. So, grace and peace to you. Grace, peace, because you've been extended grace, you now have peace with God. You're not an enemy of God. God's wrath no longer abides on you. That's what that means. Shalom. Grace and peace to you. From who? From the triune God. And put in terminology that really isn't repeated in anywhere in the New Testament, even though the Apostle Paul many times says grace and peace to you from the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or he concludes a book that way. John does the same thing, grace and peace to you from the triune God, but he gives them three different monikers or names, revealing specific things about the character of God. So first is grace and peace from the Father. Who's that? From him who is. That's the, the one, literally the one being, the one who is in existence, the one who has always existed, the one who has always existed from eternity past, the one who never had a beginning, the eternal one, the uncreated one. That is God the Father. He's always been. The being one from the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come. In other words, always been, presently exists, always will be. And the unique phrase there, for the one who is to come, many times we think, well, that's got to be Jesus. It's not Jesus. It's erkomai. It's just a Greek word, and it means coming. It's a present tense with future implication. It's a present tense verb. The one, literally, the one who is coming. Grace and peace from God the Father, the one who is coming. Literally, the one who is coming, it means he's on his way. He's coming means he's on his way, which means it's imminent. It could happen at any time. Grace and peace to you from God the Father, who is on his way. The Father is coming home. You mean God the Father comes to his people? Yeah, he does. It's all over the Old Testament. He will dwell with his people. Not just Jesus is coming. 
The Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit's coming again in unique ways. God the Father's coming. It says right here. The one who is, who was, and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. The seven spirits who are before his throne. What is that all about? Just so you know, that's the Holy Spirit. This is used, phrase in uh, Revelation 3, verse 1. The seven spirits of God. So they're of God. These seven spirits are of God. Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 5. The seven lamps of fire burning before the throne of God, which are the seven spirits of God. So uh, it's the spirit, spirits of God that are before the throne of God, burning with fire, which the spirit is often characterized as. Well, this is kind of strange. Well, not really if you're a master of the Old Testament like John the Apostle who was Jewish who had been reading and memorizing his Old Testament Scripture for 90 years now, and he knows the prophecies of the Old Testament that still need to be fulfilled, and Zechariah is one of those. Where does this come from? Seven spirits who are before his throne. Well, you read Zechariah chapter 4, the whole chapter, and that's where it came from. There's hardly a verse in chapter 1 where there's not a direct allusion to some prophecy in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7, Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah chapter 4, Daniel chapter uh, 2, chapter 4, chapter 7, chapter 12, Psalm 89, Psalm 42. I mean, on and on. It's amazing. Just bleeding with Old Testament Scripture. Jesus is the fulfillment of all. So this is the Holy Spirit. So grace and peace to you from the Father, from the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, verse 5. And then he just goes on with all these defining adjectives of who Jesus is like, which reminds me, when was the last time you talked to somebody, maybe an unbeliever, about Jesus? You've you got to introduce them to Jesus. I remember we did a basketball camp in Sunnyvale seven years ago, and I had a, a kid from Sunnyvale who was seven years old, First day of camp, he never even heard the name Jesus. I couldn't believe. Are you serious? I said, yep. Wow. Let me tell you who Jesus is. Let me tell you what Jesus is like. By Friday, he knew about Jesus, what he was like. If you have opportunity to talk to an unbeliever and they say, well, tell me about Jesus, what's Jesus like? Where do you go? Where do you go in Scripture to, to explain who, what Jesus is like? It's kind of a tricky question because, well, you go to the Gospels. Well, not really because that's what Jesus used to be like. Okay, then you go to Revelation 19. Well, not really because that hasn't happened yet. I think you can go to Revelation chapter 1, better place than any, because of all the... Did you know there are over 25 descriptions specifically and explicitly of who Jesus is, what he is like, and what he thinks today, right now? Over 25 descriptions out of it in Revelation chapter. We can't even go over them all. He is the glorified Christ. He's not the suffering servant anymore. We're going to see that. You can go to the Gospels and, yes, learn the truths about Jesus as the suffering Messiah. He was the God-man. He doesn't change in his nature or character, but some things changed. He has a glorified body now that he didn't have before he died. He has a glorified body now that he didn't have before he was born of Mary. Well, tell us about Jesus, John. Well, he's the faithful witness. This comes right out of Psalm 89. It's a Davidic psalm. It's a prophecy about the coming Messiah who would be from the loins of David as king, king of kings and lord of lords, reigning on the earth. If you don't know Psalm 89, you're going to miss it. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the descendant of David. The next phrase, he is also the firstborn of the dead. That comes right out of the psalms as well, Davidic Psalm 89. What does that mean? Well, he's the firstborn. He is the supreme one. He's the one that comes before all, and he's the firstborn of the dead. He's the, he's the preeminent one and comes before with respect to dying and coming back to life. He's the first of those who will die and be resurrected. Description of the Davidic Messiah who will reign on the earth. And also, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Guess where that comes from? Psalm 89. All three of those phrases come right out of Psalm 89. Prophetic psalms about the coming Messiah who would be from the loins of David who would reign as a king on the earth. This is a theme of the book of Revelation. It goes on more about not just describing Jesus or his roles, but listen to this. This is present tense now. To him who loves us. Now he's talking about Jesus. To him who loves us. Loves us. Present tense. Loves, loves us, John is saying. Laodiceans, those of you who are believers. Jesus loves you. You can legitimately say to any Christian, Jesus loves you, present tense. This is the only place in the New Testament 
where Jesus' love is described this way, present tense love for his people. It's usually in the past tense. Uh, God so loved the world, past tense. God loved many times. The only time that this present tense form of the word for love regarding Jesus' love for someone or God the Father's love for someone is in the Gospel of John for the most part, and it's the Son loves the Father and the Father loves the Son. So this is unique Description of Jesus, he loves us. He didn't just love us 2,000 years ago when he died. He currently loves us as we are. I was profoundly struck maybe 20 years ago talking to a Christian that I admired that was older than me, I thought more spiritually mature than me, and they shared something vulnerably that they hadn't shared with too many people, and they said, I just, I know I'm a Christian, I know I'm saved, I know my sin's forgiven, I know God cares, I know God provides, but I just don't feel like he loves me. Wow, really? Really? Yeah, I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. He loved me. He loved a group generically. He loves the church. He loved Israel. He loves the elect. He doesn't love me. Well, here's your verse. Jesus, to him who loves us. Present tense participle. It goes on and continues forevermore. If you're a Christian, God loves you. Well, I blew it this week. Well, Jesus loves you still if you're saved. Well, I sin all the time. Well, Jesus loves you. Well, I'm not perfect. Well, Jesus loves you. Well, I'll probably mess up again. Well, he'll continue to love you. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Where sin abounds, Jesus' love for his people abounds all the more. So that's continual. He loves us. Jesus loves you. It's not just a platitude for little kids. Jesus loves you. Well, you don't know me. Jesus loves you. What else did Jesus do? He released us, set us free. He purchased us. He bought us. We were slaves. We had another master. That master was sin. That master was Satan, but particularly sin. He released us by his death on the cross. He paid the penalty. He bought us. He purchased us. He selected us. He was purposeful. He was deliberate. He bought us while we were still enemies of his, not worthy of his love. Jesus loves you, liberated us from all of our sins, all of our sins, past, present, and future, all of our sins. That's the good news. That's the gospel. How do you do it? By his blood, his death. Not only that, the blessings just keep piling on. Verse 6, what else does God do for his people, Jesus in particular? Well, he's made us to be a kingdom, a corporate entity, a kingdom. The theme of kingdom begins in Genesis chapter 1 and goes throughout the whole Bible, culminates in Revelation 20, kingdom. God's been building a kingdom of people saints for 6,000 years, still doing it. The kingdom is manifest incrementally, little by little, sometimes spiritually, and continues on spiritually, and then there's going to be more literal manifestations of the kingdom in the future, especially with Israel and the land that he promised in the Old Testament, and the fact that Jesus would reign on the earth, which was promised in the Old Testament, which hasn't happened yet. Jesus must reign on the earth. And he's building a kingdom. He has built a kingdom. Where if, you're, if you know the king, you're in the kingdom. Am I in the kingdom? I'm in the kingdom. It doesn't look like the kingdom when I look around and read the newspaper. I know. Don't look around. Look up. Colossians. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Focus on heaven. You know the king, you're in the kingdom. Is this all there is? Nope. More's a coming. It's exciting. That's why you should read Revelation. So he made us to be a kingdom. That's corporately, but individually, we are priests, every single one of us. If you're a Christian, you got saved, then you are a priest. In the Old Testament, you had to be of a certain family, Aaron, to be a priest. In the New Testament, you have to be of a specific family to be a priest. If you're not in the specific priestly family, you are not a priest. You're not even a Christian. The new family to be a part of and associated with in the New Testament is the family of Jesus. Can I get an amen? How'd you get into his family? By adoption. Adoption by belief in the gospel. God becomes your father. Jesus becomes not only your savior and your Lord, but also your brother. And all other believers become your brothers and sisters in Christ. And now, you're, since you're in his family, you are a priest. What's a priest? Main thing, you have direct access to God. Direct, immediate access to God. How close is the almighty, infinite God of the universe? A prayer away. Even closer than that. Because he tends to us even when we don't pray. We are priests, a beautiful gift, 
priest to his God and father to him, man, as, yes, to him, how appropriate. And then John just has to say, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever, amen. There's the amen I was looking for. Then John gets excited. He quotes another verse from the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Behold, wake up, Christian. Yeah, I woke some of you up. That's what behold means. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. He, literally, he is on his way. He is en route. It is imminent. We don't know the day or the hour, but it is imminent. It could happen at any time. Nothing else needs to happen prior to his coming. That's what that means. He's on his way. It's been 2,000 years. God is patient. This time when he comes, he won't be shrouded in a cave or a barn with animals that nobody saw. But every eye will see him on planet Earth. Even those who pierced him. Every eye on planet Earth. How's that possible? I thought the planet was like a sphere and round. Yeah, and Jesus will probably circle that Earth in uh, less than split second several times, bright and shining like the sun. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. Who's that? Romans and Jews. They're still around. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be amen. Then a little quote from Jesus himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega. What's that? First and last letter of the alphabet. I'm everything. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. That could be true of the Father and also of Jesus. is true of both of them. Revelation 22, 13, Jesus literally, specifically says, I, Jesus, I am the Alpha and the Omega. There is no one greater than me. Jesus is the preeminent one. This is why I want to talk about this. What do we need to know about a church, and a healthy church, an obedient church? We need to listen to Jesus. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Almighty One. He's the only voice we need to heed and obey regarding the church. Verse 9, John goes on, I, John, your brother. And your brother, he's identifying, not just, I, John, your elder and pastor. No, no, your brother. He just called himself a slave earlier. I'm just one of you. I'm a fellow partaker, just like you, fellow partaker. And I'm a fellow partaker. I share in afflictions, is the literal word in verse 9. Afflic not the tribulation, but afflictions. This is just the normal suffering that goes on in the Christian life, and for some it's more severe in persecuted areas and persecuted countries like we have today and have always had throughout church history. I share that with you. I've been afflicted and persecuted like many of you have in these churches that he's going to be writing. I know you are under duress. I know that some of you have lost your life. And you're under affliction for the kingdom and the perseverance. You've got to persevere. Hang in there. God will sustain you. And ultimately, he will take you as his own to heaven. That's where we're all headed. I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was just being a shepherd. I was being a pastor. I was preaching the Bible. I was telling people about Jesus. I wouldn't compromise. I wouldn't shut up. And I ended up on this island in prison for it. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I was in, in spirit. He was in a spiritual, ecstatic state of mind. He had his senses about him. He wasn't frothing all, frothing all over the floor like a wild animal. This is typical in the Old Testament where God elevates him. God did this with Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Elevated him into another dimension, the spiritual dimension, where he would get divine revelation with the highest level of understanding, comprehension, and clarity possible. I was in the Spirit. It was a prophetic trance in an ecstatic state. He was privileged to do so. This is not normative today. This doesn't happen to people today. He was an apostle. He was a conduit of divine revelation. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That, that's Sunday. The Lord's, that's why we call it the Lord's Day. That's why we worship and gather. This tradition had already been established by Paul and the earlier apostles. We celebrate the resurrection on Sunday. That's why we are here. And I heard behind, so then he goes on to say, and here's how the revelation came to be. I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. It was loud. The voice that keeps speaking to him is loud and thundering throughout this whole passage. It's thundering. It is loud. It is the voice of God himself. It's authoritative. It gets his attention. It, it frightens him. Some of these phrases about the voice that he hears are explicitly and literally taken out of Old Testament prophetic books or Psalm 42, the voice of God. And other psalms that speak of the voice of God described this way? And it's Jesus. Jesus has the voice of God because Jesus is God. 
and speaks with such authority. Verse 11, what did the voice say? The voice said to John, write down in a book, write down in a scroll, literally papyrus leaves that were used for scrolls, not the books like we have. So papyrus leaves from Egypt, write down on a scroll. So John write this whole thing, the, they estimate that the whole revelation, all 22 chapters in our English Bible, would fit on a papyrus scroll about 15 feet long. Is it possible? Yeah, I've seen, I have seen firsthand the Dead Sea Scrolls. I have seen the 2,000-year-old Isaiah scroll that went from that wall to that wall. That's what he did. So write it down and then send it to the seven churches, these specific seven churches that I have chosen. Ephesus, we'll learn about next week, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Why these seven? Because God decided to, that's why. Ask him when you get to heaven. It suited his purpose. Well, is something mystical and magic about seven? Not necessarily, although seven occurs many times in the book of Revelation. Why these churches? Why not Colossae? Colossians, well-known church, same area, close by. Probably because these seven churches represent everything Jesus wanted to say to the churches that covers everything you need to know about a church. That's what I think. And also, practically, it was on this circuit of a postal route made it very practical for his messengers to go and everybody can have a copy instead of in some remote region somewhere. So very gracious of God to do that. So here they are. So now let's go ahead and look at the glorified Christ who is the Lord of the church. By the way, who's the senior pastor? I don't know if I ever answered that question. Who's the senior pastor of Creekside Bible Church? I, yeah, I did. It's Jesus. Jesus is our senior pastor. Anybody asked you? Oh, you got a church merge? Yeah, what do you call it? Creekside Bible Church. Who's the senior pastor? Uh, Jesus. Well, well, that's no fair. He's not the senior pastor at our church. Well, he should be. That'll be an interesting conversation. Anyway, so then John, we don't know if he was in a jail cell or probably chained up or out among the rocks in the quarry, but at some point, verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. So it was a literal audible voice that he heard and then having turned he saw seven golden lampstands seven golden lampstands right from Zechariah chapter 4 and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man son of man right from Daniel chapter 7 the only time Jesus is called or the Messiah is called the son of man in the Old Testament Jesus' favorite term for himself the son of man the, the Messiah who would rule on earth on behalf of Yahweh that's what that means it's a prophecy He's the Son of Man. He is glorified. He's not the suffering servant anymore. He has a resurrection body. He is clothed in a robe reaching to the feet that comes right out of the Old Testament. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 9, that imagery is identical. It refers to one with dignity and authority who represents God himself. Many times speaking words of judgment, and that's exactly what Jesus is going to do to his churches, clothed with this robe reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash right out of Daniel chapter 10, another authoritative person sent on behalf of God to speak judgment to his people, and that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is the judge of the church, verse 14. And then literally John goes from head to toe in describing Jesus. This is what Jesus is like today. His hair, his head and his hair are white like wool, like snow. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. He's the eternal one. Jesus has always existed. His eyes are like a flame of fire. What does that mean? His vision penetrates to the deepest recesses of the soul. Jesus knows you. He knows me. He knows everything. Now in his glorified state, he is omniscient. He knows everything. And he's going to say that to the seven churches. He starts out every, every letter. I know you. I know your deeds. I know what you've done. This was not true of Jesus in his humiliation. He didn't know everything. When he was 12 years old in obscurity, nobody knew who he was. He never did a miracle. He didn't know all things. He was just like any other human boy. He was God in the flesh, but he didn't know everything. There were times where God the Father allowed him to know something supernaturally, but he was never omniscient in his humanity the first time. While on earth, at the end of his ministry, he even said, no one knows the day of the hour, not even the Son of of man. That hasn't been revealed. It's been withheld by the Father from me at this point. Then Jesus died, was glorified, ascended into heaven before he went to heaven. And after he was glorified after dying, Jesus confronted Peter and said, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? 
And one of those times, Peter said, Lord, you know, every, you know I love you. You know all things. After his resurrection, Jesus took back his omniscience. And that's how he lives today in omniscience. He knows everything. The perfect judge. That's the perfect judge. The perfect judge has all the facts. Nothing is hidden. It's hard to be a judge when you don't have all the facts. Jesus is the perfect judge because he has all the facts, because he knows everything. You can't hide anything. That's how you get justice. Some of these churches or people in these churches are trying to hide stuff from God. It's not going to work. And we can't do that either. We can't hide stuff from God. If you've got stuff you're trying to hide in your life, don't try to hide. Confess it. Confess it to God. Confess it to a brother. Confess it to a sister. You will find grace, mercy, compassion, forgiveness, freedom, liberty. Confession, a beautiful thing. So his eyes are like a burning fire. His feet were burnished like burnished bronze. They are pure. And when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. So he speaks with great authority, like Ezekiel 43, which is the voice of God. Ezekiel 43, the voice of God, the sound of many waters. And his feet, he walks around with bare feet like burnished bronze, burning and singeing everything impure as he walks around. And where is he walking? Among the seven lampstands. What are the seven lampstands? The churches. Jesus walks in the midst of his churches. He did it 2,000 years ago. He's doing it today. Jesus walks amidst his churches. Jesus is walking among Creekside Bible Church. Jesus is inspecting. Jesus knows everything. Jesus has a few words to say to our church. This is encouraging. This is frightening. Verse 16. So here's Jesus, Lord of the church, the glorious one, the resurrected one, the all-authoritative, all-knowing senior pastor of the church. In his right hand, that's the power of God, he held seven stars. What are the seven stars? The seven stars are the seven messengers of the churches. They're not angels. They're not angels. Greek word, angelos. Many times in the Bible, it means a human messenger. Like when Jesus sent messengers to go get his donkey, it's the same word. John the Baptist was called a messenger. John the Baptist was called an angelos. These are not angels. These are men. These are messengers. These are guys like Epaphroditus and Epaphras who were messengers of the churches or 2 Corinthians, it talks about the apostles of the churches who served at the pleasure of the apostles being their messengers, being deployed on their behalf. That's what these seven are. They're messengers of the church, representing the church, have authority delegated to the churches to serve the churches. That's who these men are. And Jesus holds them in his right hand. You know what that means? He has all power and authority over the leaders in the local church. Jesus has all authority in this church. Jesus has all authority over every church. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Jesus speaks with judgment. He speaks with clarity. He speaks directly. He speaks judgment. He also speaks blessing. He speaks judgment with respect to unrepented sin. He speaks blessing with respect to obedience. The sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. That's a description even of God himself in all of his glory, his resplendent glory. And that's the faith, face of Jesus, of the glorified Christ. This is the Christ that we come to see every Sunday morning when we come to church. It's not the suffering servant. It's the glorified Christ, Lord and judge of the church. This should endue worship, humility, holy fear on our behalf. Well, we would have done the same thing John did. John saw all this. He fell over like a dead man. Appropriately so, humbled of the glory of God in light of his pathetic, despicable sin. Being in the presence of God. I remember my good friend Steve Fernandez, who started the Cornerstone Seminary 15 years ago. Pastor, faithful pastor of 32 years up at Community Bible Church in Vallejo. I remember he got his brain tumor and he knew he was going to die. And it was the last time I saw him, and he had been decaying and was still trying to function and preach and lead our seminary and he was just sharing how now that he's, his death was imminent, it was close reality had set in, he's going to meet Jesus, it was an exciting prospect but he had a holy fear I'll never forget that a holy fear regarding the embarrassment of his life of sin for 62 years John, overwhelmed by the glory of God, 
falls over dead like a dead man. Then Jesus in his grace, in his compassion, in his mercy, the tender shepherd places his right hand literally on John, saying, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. I shared this with you recently, the, the number one command throughout the whole Bible from God, from Genesis to Revelation, is do not be afraid. The number one command spoken by God to his people through the whole Bible, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. If you know God, if you know Jesus, you don't need to be afraid. Rest in him, trust in him. I'm the first and the last, trust in me. He just spoke, and he, he gives the reason why you don't need to be afraid. Because after that, he just talks about who he is. Lean on me. Think about who I am. I am your sustenance. I am your strength. I am your sustainer. I am your preserver. I am your protector. I am your provider. I am the Lord Christ. I am your Savior. Goes on to describe himself. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I am the one who was dead, and behold, I've come to life. I have authority over death and life itself. Trust in me and it's eternal forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. No one dies without my permission. No one lives without my permission. How glorious is this Christ? Verse 19 and 20. Therefore, John, in light of all of these things, write down the things that you've seen. Everything you've seen in chapter 1 here. The vision of me, everything, of what I have said, how I've described myself. I want the churches to know about this. I want them to know me more intimately. Write them down. And the things which are here in chapter 1, the things, that, uh, which shall, oh, the things which are going on in the churches right now and, and the things that will take place after these things regarding the future. Write them all down, and John did. And that's the book of Revelation. And then he closes with verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, I'll tell you what they are so you don't have to guess. And the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the seven messengers. The word should be messenger, not angel. These are men who represent the churches. And they're doing John a favor. They're literally going around taking this to the seven churches. And the seven churches are the seven lampstands. So many times, we're going to see that in the book of Revelation. You don't need to be afraid of the book of Revelation. Many times when there's imagery or symbolism, a lot of times John explains what it is, or Jesus does, or the Holy Spirit helps us out. He wants us to understand his word. So with that, these are just some beautiful and precious reminders of who really is the Lord of the church and that we can always bow the knee to Christ, look with great anticipation as whenever we gather a Bible study on the Lord's day, the thing that should be dominant in our thinking is we get to go worship the saints and serve the living Christ who's not just in heaven but literally through his spirit. He is in our midst. To him be all the glory. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for the treasure of your word, for scripture. Thank you for giving this information to John the Apostle. Thank you through your Holy Spirit, preserving it when he was under persecution and also preserving it throughout 2,000 years of church history, having it translated into a language that we can understand. And now you give us the Holy Spirit to understand it and apply it to our lives. What a blessing. We want to bow the knee this day, Jesus, and Honor your rightful place as the Lord of the church. We give you all the praise and glory in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.